Y Group invites all AEC industry leaders to the 2024 AEC Small Business and Entrepreneurship Forum, the premier event for small firms in the AEC sector. Experience innovative strategies and insights on May 21st, crafted by Zweig Group's industry experts. Engage in keynotes and interactive sessions focused on recruitment, retention, and business growth. Join Zweig Group for this unique networking opportunity and take your business to new heights. Secure your spot today and be part of the AEC industry's future. Visit ZweigGroup.com for more information. The Zweig Group team looks forward to welcoming you. Welcome to the Zweig Letter Podcast putting architectural, engineering, planning, and environmental consulting advice and guidance in your ear. Zweig Group's team of experts have spent more than three decades elevating the industry by helping AEP and environmental consulting firms thrive. And these podcasts deliver invaluable management, industry, client, marketing, and HR advice directly to you free of charge. The Zweig Letter Podcasts, elevating the design industry one episode at a time. Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Wilbur, and I'm excited to be with you today. This is two episodes back to back that I've actually had a chance to record And today I'm sitting with a good friend of mine, Will Swearingen, who is the Director of Ownership Transition with Zwei Group. Will is a good friend. He's been with the company for several years now. I can't believe it. I mean, I look back and it just seems like time has flown by. I left the company in 2019 and he had already had a couple of years under his belt then. And now I look at it, I mean, he's a a lifer. And so, (laughs) so, but it's cool because my new office where I'm doing my recordings and, and working out of is actually not terribly far from his home. He actually physically lives in Rogers, Arkansas, and so which is just right up the street from Fayetteville. So everything in Northwest Arkansas is close together. So we had a chance to just actually physically get together. We had some Onyx coffee for those of you that are local, and we decided to sit down and chop it up and talk business. So Will, how are you doing today? Fantastic. Well, it's great to be back in historic downtown Rogers. Glad to see your <laughs> your new office space up here in the bustling metropolis. Yeah. A lot of activity going on. I'm not sure people can hear, but there's a, a good bit of roadway traffic outside as well as a new park that's going in. So Yeah. It's pretty exciting. And I think anybody listening to this, no matter where you are in the country, we're kind of in Walmart land and The road that Will is referring to is actually going to be a main artery right into the new Walmart campus, Mm -hmm. which is going to be pretty impressive when they're done with it. I think it's a a five to seven year project, but yeah, it's it's going to be impressive to say the least. So we'll we'll see. We'll We'll see what happens. happens. (laughs) Yeah, it should be good. But anyway, man, it's good to catch up with you. I haven't seen you in a while. We've talked on the phone quite a bit. And originally what precipitated this conversation was that Man, we need to talk about what's going on with firms in the design industry right now at at this point in time, right? We're at the juncture. At the moment that we're recording this, it's at the end of March of 2021. I can't believe it's 2021, but yeah, it's the end of March 2021. And, you know, we're trying to get back to some normalcy. Will and I were talking about the fact that, you know, remote work is here to stay. I think we can Mm -hmm. all agree with that. But I also think that it's, we're still at an interesting time in a space for design firms. 
with leadership trying to figure out what where are the next steps that we're going to make? What, you know, how are things looking? I've talked to a lot of firms where backlog is really strong, where there are a lot of opportunities on the horizon. But still, I think in the back of everybody's mind is there, there's some uncertainty. Is there another shoe that's going to drop? Is there something else that's going to really get in the way of, of you being able to fully take or fully realize the, the growth that you want to see within your design firm? And so I, I thought it would be good for Will and I to kind of sit down today. And I really want to hear from him. What are some of his experiences? What is he hearing on the street, so to speak? as he goes out and connects with all these firms, whether virtual or in person. And so that's why we wanted to have you on, man. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. It is. It's crazy. We're basically one year into this thing as of this month. And I think people have really, you know, companies have stabilized. They've trouble shot all the the issues, you know, out of the gate last year, that first six months. I think a lot of people were really scrambling to figure out, you know, what their business was going to look like next month. And now I think a lot of companies are somewhat back on track. Like you mentioned, backlogs are somewhat consistent. I think across the industry, obviously, some of the the groups got it hit a little bit harder. Our friends in the architecture space that are doing some public works are kind of coming back online. Interiors, you know, they took a pretty good lick on the chin last year. So it's, you know, somewhat a mixed bag out there, Randy, you know, when you try to pinpoint what's going on in the industry and and really capture the pulse. There's different pockets, there's different perspectives. And I will say that at Swide Group, sort of where I exist is in the ownership transition area, but also probably more in the special projects where where kind of a one-off request comes through that doesn't necessarily fit one of our our more out-of-the-bag approaches. And so I will say that one of the things that keeps coming up and keeps coming across my desk is how do we keep our best people? It's the retention, the talent retention problem. Um, and when you couple that with the need to transition companies and firms in this industry, you know, it, it really creates a relatively perplexing problem for companies and leaders as they try to figure out one, how do we bring our people up to a point where, where they're ready to have this conversation about ownership? whether these are internal people or whether we're trying to bring somebody in from the outside, you know, equity and ownership is something that is highly coveted in this industry. It's a very prestigious, if you will, sort of title, the principal title. It's where a lot of people want to be. And so that's been the conversation I've been having a lot is, is one, how do we get people to that point? And then two, for me personally, as a founder, as a firm owner, how do I start to plan my next steps and my exit, because I think that this pandemic has really got a lot of people thinking about their future. Their spouses are like, get home, get home, get out of the office and let's let's take a bike ride or let's take a trip. So I think there's some pressure on a lot of these, pardon the, the term boomers, but the baby boomers, you know, there's there is a lot of pressure for them to start to think about their exit. Yeah, no, I, I totally can feel that, you know, as a Gen Xer, I'm not a boomer, but as a Gen <laughs> Xer, I, I totally... I totally get that mindset, right? I think, you know, in most people's minds, you know, we tell ourselves we could work until the cows come home, right? Mm -hmm. But that's just not the reality. I mean, the reality is that you want to put in as much time as you can. And then at some point in time, you want to to hand the baton to somebody else. You know, we talk about a lot in, in a lot of the Zweig leadership trainings that I've done is that leaders, 
ultimately need to work themselves out of a job. Not that they're going to get fired, but that they're going to create new opportunities for new people. Mm -hmm. I always like to say, you know, if you work in a firm and you lead or you own a company, your ceiling should be somebody, that youthful individual that works in your firm, that should be their floor. Meaning that right. you're setting the foundation for somebody else to, to, to get on your shoulders and to grow that thing even more. And I think that's a challenge that a lot of people face. Some of it is just psychological, right? Of just, you know, am I going to be valued anymore, mm-hmm. right? Because if I'm not leading the ship, then what, you know, what is my value? And you see right. that a lot. A lot of people that retire at a young age, at that proverbial age of 65, and then, you know, they end up dying three years later. And I'm not putting a death sentence on anyone, but it's just the reality. It's, it's the reality. Yeah, it's a reality. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. I actually think you can have your cake and eat it too. And what I mean by that is simply as a leader, as a firm leader, a firm owner, there are ways for you to transition out of the leadership role, but not out of the role of, of being a mentor or being somebody that is kind of like the bedrock of an organization mm-hmm. and, and still create opportunities for growth and for new people to come in and take the helm and run with it. You know, every year we ask a bunch of owners, what's their their breakdown? How do they spend their time? You know, how do they actually spend their time? And then ideally, how do they want to spend their time? And one of the biggest gaps that I think they realize is that mentorship piece. They, they want to be doing more mentoring and they're not. But on the flip side of that, when it comes to client management and project management, they're spending a whole bunch more time on that than they want to be. And, you know, that is the area. That's where you can really sort of fuse the two when kind of get out of your own way and you start to introduce your team into the client organizations. You give them some runway. You allow them to manage a project and interface with the client and you you stay by their side. That is the mentorship opportunity that I think a lot of people, like you said, it's psychological. They almost have to get out of their own way in order to really start to drive that value further down into their organization. And it's it's a struggle. I'll pick on the architects just because maybe it's easier than with some of the engineering companies, but I definitely don't want to leave our engineers out of this <laughs> predicament. <laughs> Can't but, do that. You know, my first job in college was doing architectural salvage. My dad was an architect. He built K-12 schools all across Northwest Arkansas. So, grew up in the design industry through that route. And then, you know, my, my job in college was basically going around and dismantling old barns, old historic homes, and salvaging the good parts and the good bits. And to me, when I'm, I'm fielding some of these phone calls, really this last year, the last three months, there's a lot of small shops, five to 10 person shops that they want to figure out how to get out. And it's almost like I was thinking back to this big fraternity house on the NC State campus that we we went and we lived in this house for a week and we slowly dismantled it room by room, window by window, door by door, and we salvaged the good parts and and then ultimately the building got demolished. But when you know when we walked in there, it was a beautiful space. It seemed like if somebody would just come in, give it a little bit of attention, breathe some life back into it, maybe do a, a rehab or a refurb of the facility, that it could have lived for another hundred years. And to me, that's kind of an analogy for for some of these small firms where leaders and founders aren't really paying attention to the value of the existing business. It's almost like this old fraternity house where structurally sound, you know, huge, beautiful facility, but wasn't tended to to keep it going for the next generation. And so sometimes when I when we get these calls 
where, you know, it's a seven person architecture firm that wants to find a way to, to get the value out of the business and the, the individual's 65, 73 years old, it's too late. It's almost too late. And so it's, that's just been something I've been thinking about is how do we communicate this to younger design professionals, the entrepreneurial designers that are out there and want to keep a small niche shop, want to, they don't want to necessarily grow and be a big business. But I want, I want companies and, and firms in the space to start thinking about the intrinsic value, the equity value of what they have built because the client relationships, the designs, the contracts, the individuals that they interact with, the communities that they interact with, you know, there's so much value in that stream that people, I think they fail to kind of recognize how, and it's difficult how to really capitalize on that and especially at the end. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I think that is the, well, listen, if you could solve that problem, everybody would be knocking on your door right now, right? Because there's so many small firms that are all struggling with the same issue. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I think it is interesting. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's like you wish you knew what, at what point in time within the growth of an organization should that owner be thinking about transition, right? Because if you start talking to a guy that's in his late, a guy or a gal that's in their late 40s or early 50s, a lot of times in their mind, they're thinking, well, no, I can do this for a long time. I mean, I, I can remember going in and seeing firms where owners were like 78, like, listen, I've still got three more years left. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking, wow. Come on, and that's yeah. cool. I mean, he, yeah. and, he, and he legitimately did. This is three years beyond three years later from the time that I had that conversation. And he's still practicing architecture. And that's fine. I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think the key thing here is to know what your limits are and know when it is time for you to, you know, to relinquish things and, and give somebody else a chance at the wheel mm. to run it. And I think that's the challenge that we, especially in this industry that we face with firm leaders, both on the architecture and on the engineering side. I don't think it's, I think it is it, discipline agnostic. It's an mm-hmm. issue. That, right. It's Absolutely. an issue that happens all throughout the design industry. So, well, and, you know, on, I think on the flip side of that equation is information sharing. It's how do you get people up to speed with that kind of conversation. And, and so many leaders don't know how to share the correct amount of information to motivate their staff, to measure performance, but also give, maybe it's a certain band within the organization, the ability to see what's going on, the ability to see the future and, and the, the potential that the company has. You know, that, that's another area where I think we get a lot of inquiries is how do we start to communicate to the next tier. So setting aside the small firm for a little bit and looking at the mid to 100 person firm, a lot of them really want to figure out how do they start to communicate the opportunity? Because when you really peel it back, some of the numbers, this is an incredible industry to be an owner in. I mean, there are a lot of companies that are very profitable, that run very ethical shops and the opportunity for their teams to come up and elevate themselves, elevate their potential in their career, you know, really does exist in this industry. And so I think a lot of firm owners and a lot of leaders really struggle with how do we start to tell that story without getting people all antsy about, I need a raise or where's my bonus? And what's the right level of information to share to get people interested in the conversation? And then how do you develop that conversation? Yeah. You know, it's funny, as I'm sitting here, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about some of the things I remember Mark Zweig teaching for years about open book management, the value of, of that type of transparency at a firm level, because 
you know, you hear a lot of young people say, well, that's all great. And those guys in the corner office, those guys and gals, they're making all the money. And I don't really know what ownership would look like for me. And Mm -hmm. if a firm is not really kind of sharing that information or at least some of that information, it's hard for me or hard for any young person to wrap their head around what that ultimately means. Is it, you know, yeah, everybody wants to be a principal. Everybody would like to be a leader. But is that ultimately something that, you know, that I aspire to without the knowledge of the other aspects of it, the financial implications and all of that? The risks are... Are, can be substantial. Sure. But um, high risk, high reward. High risk, it's just, high reward. Yeah. It's how do you balance it? How do you fit that into the, all the other variables in your day-to-day life? You know, balancing family, job, other investments in your life. And then when you're presented with this opportunity, and you know, sometimes the numbers can be staggering what the outgoing owner is is requesting or is for all intents and purposes entitled to on their exit. And again, without the education, without the context, the conversation can fall flat quite quickly. And so I, I think that's one area where if firms are more proactive in, in addressing the three, the one, the 18 month timeline, the three year timeline, the five year timeline, and starting to look at what's their planning process and how do they approach really a variety of different verticals within their business, but you know, ownership transition being one key aspect that really drives a lot of the other areas of the business. That if leaders are paying attention to that part, the business planning, the strategic planning components, some of this other stuff kind of falls in place, ideally. And and so that's another area where I think this industry continue can continue to improve is their adherence to rigorous, maybe not rigorous, but annual updates on their business planning process, and then getting others involved in that process. Because just going through that activity gives people a glimpse, if you will, into what the future of the company looks like. In the absence of information, I think people come up with a lot of scenarios that really aren't founded in reality. It's called imagination running wild. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I think if you can keep some of that at bay by keeping the conversation going about what the business looks like, what the business is doing, and then ultimately where you see people contributing to your business, then the value at the end of that, I think for the the outgoing owner is only enhanced because they've prefaced the conversation in a way that people feel more comfortable with the obligation. They feel more comfortable with the risk that they're about to have to take on because it is, again, like as I said a little bit earlier, it is substantial. And that's, again, why it's the M&A market is so hot right now is because people get to that point, you know, that dialogue doesn't progress and, and the external option is the option. It's the best option for the employees from a growth perspective, from landing on their feet. You know, you can't really turn over a company to somebody that doesn't want to run a business. Yeah. Have you seen, and I know you've seen a lot doing this type of work within the design industry, but have you seen some success stories where people not just took Zwei Group's advice, but just, you know, they put into practice sound principles that help them with this transition and what that looks like? What would you, if you could relay one story or one interesting anecdote that you've you've experienced, what would it be? Well, I'm having to flip back through the Rolodex here, Randy. <laughs> so. Oftentimes we get we get called in at the last minute. And, oh, I know. And, and, and it's a tough call. A seventy-three-year-old architect, seventy-three-year-old engineer, fill in the blank. 
mm-hmm. has not thought about or considered what transition looks like, thought they could work until they were dead and maybe had a health scare. And all of a sudden now, mm-hmm. you know, everything is, I've got to figure out, I've got to have a plan in place when that conversation should have happened maybe 10, 15 years ago. You know, I, I think some of the more successful companies that do this have listened to a variety of external advisors and gotten advice from different sources, whether that's their friends who work in a different industry, but have encountered the same issue, you know, whether it's a, a lawyer or heck, somebody who's had to turn over a gas station. You know, this activity does happen in a variety of industries. And, and I think the people who listen to their friends, and sometimes friends give you good advice, sometimes they give you bad advice, but having an external advisor and again, addressing the conversation consistently and often is really where the more successful stories probably exist. And I'm just trying to think back to one or two that have been successful. And I would say what sets those apart from others is that they have leadership development programs. They actively invest in their people and getting them up to speed on other components of their career, whether that's being able to sell work, being a seller-doer, managing clients, and really bridging the gap, that mentorship component, getting people out of the technical realm and giving them the opportunity. Not everybody wants that opportunity, but some people do sort of thrive in that. And I think companies and firm owners that identify specific skill sets in their people early on and then give those individuals the opportunity to flourish with whatever that skill set might be only improves the process. And then when it gets down to the mechanics, the financial components, really prior planning prevents poor performance. You know, starting early is key because these things take for forever. So whether you've got an incentive, I would say some of the the more successful ones really link performance and the incentive compensation component, not just that here's your annual bonus, but that that bonus is then meaningful and that that comes back into an equity position. I would say companies that have figured out that conundrum are the more successful ones because ultimately you're using the cash flow through the business to do this. Unless you've got somebody who's independently wealthy and and can go out and get the million dollar line of credit or whatever it is, you're going to have to use the company to finance a significant portion of the transaction or the series of transactions. And so, again, starting early, being proactive in developing your people and really understanding what your firm can handle. And that's through analysis. That's through having, whether it's a good controller, a good accountant, a good bookkeeper, somebody that, that can help you navigate that area, I think is, is very important in some of the success stories that, that we run across. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, no, no, that mean that makes that makes perfect sense. And you you know, you have me thinking as you sit here and you talk about looking at performance and incentive comp performance. I'd be curious to know how has like ESOPs played into this in terms of creating an opportunity. I and I think of like one firm that we've worked with in the past, Chad Serpernant from ISG. It's a firm, a design firm up in the upper Midwest and they went from kind of a, a an ownership perspective to an ESOP, and it was mm-hmm. really successful for them because it enabled everybody to be an owner and everybody right. to have some skin in the game, if you will. How attractive have ESOPs been coming into the design industry space as a vehicle through which to create that transition of ownership? Yeah, great question. 
it's a very compelling option. I mean, it, for a lot of companies, especially you take ISG, for example, I was actually texting with Chad last night. He calls Northwest Arkansas flavor country, yeah. which I did not know was a tagline for Marlboro cigarettes right. back in like the, the 90s or the 80s. And so he, he says he can't wait to get back down to flavor country. So yes. Chad, if you're listening, come on back. Yeah, he loves his uh, Wright's barbecue. And, and yes. uh, so, yeah, we, we've had some good meals here. So, But, you know, ESOPs are, are interesting in that they are a very, very efficient vehicle, if you will, to transition ownership. For a variety of purposes, there's some really strong tax incentives for both the outgoing shareholders as well as once the ESOP is formed, if it's a 100% S-Corp ESOP, they pay no state, no federal taxes. And so that company then has access to 30 40% more cash for an ownership transition as well as growth opportunities than your other conventional company that's not an ESOP. We've partnered with SES ESOP Strategies out of, I guess they're in the Philly area, maybe okay. King of Prussia. Okay. But Ed and his team have been an incredible asset for us as you know we walk companies through this process and we get to the culmination, the deliverable, and and we we look at you know what are the options on the table. Being able to hand off a uh, a company and their leadership team to an ESOP provider who can not only walk them through an additional feasibility study, but really help prepare the the paperwork and the documentation of the ESOP, I think has been a powerful thing for us. And I really I really value that relationship with SES because it is such an important component of these firms' life cycle. You know, they really want to leave their legacy. They really want to do this internally. They really want X, Y, and Z and these people to be the leaders of this firm going forward. But Financially, it doesn't make sense for anybody. So if you use an ESOP, it does give uh, firm leaders and founders and exiting owners a whole variety of options on how to do this and do it efficiently. So I would say it's a great option. And thing with becoming an ESOP company is that you need to start thinking about growth because growth in an ESOP should be intrinsically tied together because the value that now all of the employees, all of the shareholders are going to experience really comes from that growth of the company and you can use that additional 30 to 40% cash flow to help finance that that type of growth. So it's a great option. We have a lot of great ESOP partners that we work with as far as design firms that use us for a variety of services outside of the ownership transition. It's a great option for firms that are in the position where that is the out, you know, that's the option. Yeah. So people can obviously contact you to talk about that and you can kind of walk them through the process at least. Yeah, yeah, to a degree and then we'll hand them off to Ed. Well, I love that. Yeah. So, and I'd love to, I mean, we had Chad on a while back and he talked about the transition for him out of being, you know, one of the primary owners of ISG to creating the ESOP. And I have to say, I've actually interacted with a lot of the leadership there all the way from top to bottom and everybody has been as bought in as an owner, right? And I'm using mm-hmm. air quotes here because that's what you are. And if, if you, even if you're entry level, once you get into the ESOP program, you are an owner in the company, you have some skin in the game. And so I think it's fundamentally, it's a mindset shift for a lot of people, for a lot of workers at, you know, an entry level or, you know, mid-level who may, maybe never thought they could be an owner in a company, this gives them that opportunity. And that opportunity can be tremendous, especially if it's in a successful company like an ISG or others like that. Absolutely. And on the flip side of it, you know, the challenge 
lies in communicating what it is, what is the opportunity and what does it mean. And so marketing teams, HR teams are really having to to figure that out on the fly because they're not ESOP experts, but right. now they're being tasked with the option or the the need to communicate this to their people and, and get people excited about what the opportunity is and that that defined benefit essentially really does become a retirement tool for yeah. them. And it can, the value that can accumulate in an ESOP, a freshly created ESOP over a period of time can be immense for anyone from an entry-level person all the way up to the top of the org chart. But culturally, you can't just use it as a financial tool. You have to change the way that the company thinks, the way that the company communicates, and the way that the company operates because it is a, it's a highly regulated environment. You're regulated by the Department of Labor as well as the U.S. tax code under the ERISA. I believe it's the ERISA Act. But there's a lot of differences in how an ESOP operates than your sort of your normal run-of-the-mill design firm. Yeah. Well, I mean, and again, these are all things that you in that a design firm leader, design firm owner has to take into consideration as they, you know, as they move forward and make plans for the future. So, I mean, it's just, it's just par for the course. It's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you seeing like right now? I know that you're working with, we've had Tracy on, Tracy Eves on the um, podcast and She's just working day and night on ownership really transition uh, deals. And there always seem to be a lot of challenges that firms run into trying to get that, set that valuation and make sure that things are done properly. What are some things that owners should be thinking about if they're in that place where, man, I've got to have a conversation with the folks at Zweig. I've got to start thinking about what the next steps are. What are some of those next steps that an owner should be considering? And is when is it too early to be reaching out to talk about ownership transition or is there no such thing as too early? There's no such thing as too early. That's for sure. No, Tracy does an incredible job really helping companies understand what drives their value. And whether you have a, an internal formula that you use, whether you use one of the, the Z formulas on an annual basis to kind of have a backstop value indication, getting a formal appraisal done every three years, is just it's just good practice. You need to know where you are. You need to know what is impacting your number. And, and through an interaction with Tracy, and or our ownership transition team, you'll start to understand what it is that kind of drives value, where you can move the needle and where you can either make some adjustments or make some investments to adjust that number. And you're right, Tracy's been working uh, day and night lately. I will say at the beginning of 2021, we have had more inquiries about this topic, valuation, ownership transition, exit planning, you know, whatever somebody wants to call it the calls are coming in because really last year it shook people. And it's no surprise that, you know, gosh, 75, 80% of this industry, owners in this industry are over the age of 55. It's an aged population. And when you look at what happened over the last 12, 14 months, it's really got people thinking about what do they need to do to get out of this thing. And I would say before you even, if you don't have a value indication, you don't have a valuation and you're just starting to think about this conceptually, is really envision one, where do you want to be in 12 months, 18 months, three years as it relates to your practice? And then once you understand what level of involvement you want to have in the company, if you want to be all in or half in, you know, whatever 
your new role is that you've decided that you're going to take on. Uh, I think that's one of the bigger issues is people can't kind of get, again, get out of their own way as to what their role is. You know, once you can figure that component out, understanding what it is that you need out of the business from a, a value perspective. Some people may not need much. Other people may need to get squeeze every penny they can out of it and try by any and all means possible to get there. So I think part of it is is understanding, you know, your trajectory, your retirement timeline, your goals, financial and personal, and then really start to marry the two up because I think a lot of people wait because they don't know how to start. And you start by having the conversation. Yeah. And that's what you guys do. I mean, you you have those conversations and sometimes they're the hard conversations that have to be had. Yeah. People have to really look at where they are and what they're trying to do. I mean, people, there's a lot of introspection, if that's even a word, I think it is, Randy. It is. It is. Yeah, um, it there's is. a lot of introspection that has to happen at that point. And in the absence of, of any kind of foundation, you know, if the plan doesn't exist and it's not one that's carried on from a previous generation, you know, a lot of these these owners are starting from scratch. And so, yeah, call us up, call somebody up and start to figure out what it is that you need to do to position yourself to retire. Yeah. And if you've got employees, if you've got clients, it's more than just you. It's more than just your retirement and your, you know, yeah, you could be a firm of 50 people and you got 50 lives, 50 families exactly. that you have to think about. So there's a lot of of heavy conversations that have to happen when people get there and like we said, there's no too early yeah. to start. Just keep going. So I'm curious, you know, Zwei Group did the Elevate AEC program probably this past fall did a mm -hmm. virtual program instead of doing the live event like they've done in the past. And I was just curious, what, if anything, were you guys able to do participating in that program from an ownership transition perspective? And what did you glean from those that were able to participate in that? Well, it was a pretty significant undertaking. Our leadership team at SWI Group sat around and I guess it was probably April and we realized, you know, either this thing's going to happen or it's not going to happen. And we started to really codify the concept that this was not going to be an in-person event that year. And there's so much energy and so much enthusiasm and an atmosphere that's hard to replicate at the new Elevate AEC conference that Chad and the team have put together. It's, it's a pretty big production and it comes with a pretty big price tag too. But, you know, moving into the virtual environment allowed us to to really sort of rethink and reposition our services as it relates to that conference. And we have a lot of great partners that contribute, whether they're software companies, banks, ESOP providers, that, you know, the in-person conference gives them a great opportunity to network. I mean, that's what the whole thing's about. So we wanted to find a way to recreate that with Elevate AEC virtual, using the air quotes there. And from an ownership transition perspective, it gave us the opportunity to have a variety of different breakout sessions. I think we probably had, gosh, six or eight different mini-series, if you will, whether that was in coordination with our Principals Academy or with sort of a one-off panel. We were able to have a lot of discussions around it and, and get input from 
some people that have done it successfully, some people that are in the middle of it right now and trying to figure out how do you do it. And I'll say some of the interesting conversations that we have are from the people who are trying to buy in and that there's this figurehead, this enigma that doesn't want to participate in the process to a degree, but people are coming to us and saying, how do we approach this individual? How do we get to the point where we can have that dialogue and the discussion? And so I would say that that was one of the things that I I got out of this last conference and some of these one-off breakout sessions was people opening up and saying, how do you do it? How do you... And a lot of it was how do you approach an individual? Not how do you do the whole thing, but again, how do you have the conversation? It's... Uh, so it's almost like when you hear from senior leaders that maybe don't you know want a strategy for how they would approach this conversation with the founder of a company or an organization and coming up with a kind of a plan for how they deal with ownership transition. It's a people business. It is. And you, you have your clients, that's certainly the people business. And then inside of your company, you're not selling widgets, you're selling people's time and people's expertise. And I'll say on the other side of that coin, there is a lot of founders or and a lot of owners are saying, nobody has the fire in their belly to come and get it. Nobody's knocking on my door and saying, hey, how do I do this? And so it's this constant sort of tug of war between, I don't know how to approach this person, whether it's on the, the buying side or the selling side. And really, again, where, where Zweig Group lives is sort of in between the cracks. We're able to bring those two viewpoints together in a sort of neutral perspective. And we can just say, this is how it is done successfully in, in other companies. This is how, you know, culturally this might work with your firm. And again, we can start to have people come together around a topic that's relatively nebulous. It's relatively contentious, certainly can be very contentious when you get down to the nitty gritty and the details and the terms and what some of the expectations and the risks are associated with it. It really does help to have somebody that can just mediate that dialogue. You know, and it's funny, as you were saying that, I was sitting here thinking about conversations that I've had over the years in this industry where I would talk to leaders and they would just say, I just don't see anybody that has the same fire in the belly that I had mm -hmm. when I started this. And I think, I think that's a mistake because I think everybody represents their ideas and feelings about what they want to do differently, right? And how I may manifest that might be different than how you manifest that exactly. within the workspace. And I might be loud and verbose. You might be more quiet and circumspect. And neither one is wrong. It just might be your approach might be totally different than mine. And if I'm that loud and verbose leader looking for somebody that's just like me, I may not find them. Mm -hmm. And I might miss out on that quiet, circumspect person that is really intentional about their words and is a strong, active listener and all, all the things that this, you know, loud and successful leader isn't. And so mm -hmm. sometimes you find that, right? Because everybody's looking for that mini me right. to say, yeah, you can come in, you know, Bob, Jane, you're, I want you, I'm going to groom you to take over. And you may not have that mini me to pull on mm -hmm. to do that. And you don't need to. That's, I think that's another one of the big misconceptions is that people want to find their replacement, that find the mini me, find the person that's going to do exactly what it is that this individual or this series of individuals were able to do. And and that's I think that's one of the big fallacies in people addressing this topic is that you don't have to find 
a replacement or a replica of you or the replica of another individual. And you certainly, on the incoming owner side, don't need to try to be someone that you're not. You have to be authentic. And again, that comes back to the the development aspect of getting people to be at their best in how they serve your clients, your employees, and your business as a whole. And that doesn't always look like the same person that's been running the business for the last 30 years. Yeah. Well, you said a mouthful there, man. God, I mean, there's so many directions we could take with this conversation. I'm just thinking about those owners that are in that tweener phase where they're like, man, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. You know, I've got, I've built this, you know, you've built a great company and I just don't, I'm not sure what this transition looks like. And I think if nothing else, this conversation at least gives you some food for thought. It gives you some ideas that you can take back to the table to sit down with some of your other leaders and bounce things off of. Because the one thing that I would say from a leadership perspective is that you shouldn't be making these decisions in a vacuum. You should be pulling on the leadership, the expertise of other people, both within your organization as well as outside of your organization. Mm -hmm. And that's why Will is here. I mean, Will, I know you get a bunch of calls from a lot of people. You feel these calls on a fairly regular basis. I'll tell you what, the last three months, it's been nonstop all day, every day, which I love. I love talking to people and trying to trying to understand where the actual pain point is because you do get calls where somebody asks for something, but they need something completely different. Yeah. You know, and kind of going back in the conversation a little bit, Phil Kyle, our director of strategic planning, he wrote an article a month or so ago that the tagline may have been or the title might have been was quit treating your people like they're stupid or that they <laughs> that they can't handle the truth because you have incredibly intelligent people inside of your organizations that have complex thought processes and are problem solvers and to your point Randy they don't they may not have the big voice at the table and and be boisterous and jump up and down and make themselves known but you do have leaders and you do have problem solvers and you do have people that ultimately can take over your companies. You just have to give them the opportunity and you really have to look at how you're going to do it and how you want to make it happen because those people are there. Trust me, we talk to them all the time. Those people are in your organizations right now and they are looking at you saying, you know, when is so-and-so going to get out of the way or how do I approach this person? Because people, they can be feel for fearful for their jobs because this could put somebody, this could ostracize somebody. So yeah, it's it's it can be delicate, but it can also be a win-win for everybody. And it's the best way, I think, for companies to preserve their legacy and preserve their brands and their their positions in their communities. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Well, let's put a bow in it right here. We'll have to we'll have to this is where we're gonna we'll say that we'll have to have a, a part B to this so that we can continue this conversation. What's the best way for people to reach out? Somebody's listening to this has said, you know what, I need to connect with Will. What's the best way for them to connect with you? Well, you can go on our website. There's a little chat box and you can leave an email there. We get a ton of inquiries there. You can also send me an email. I would read off my email, but it's probably too long. My last <laughs> yeah, name's no. yeah, we'll, we'll, we, we will put, yeah, we will put all of that information, both the zweigroup.com website address, as well as Will Swearingen's email. We're going to put all of that in the show notes. Please access and connect with Will. I'll put Will's LinkedIn profile as well as his profile at Zweig. And he's a smart dude. I mean, and and I like hanging out with these younger whippersnappers that really Uh. know their stuff. And so I would encourage you, you could do a lot worse 
than, you know, giving Will a call and, um, you know, stretching his mind a bit to kind of look at your unique situation. And that's the one thing that I will say about Zweig and anything that we've done over the years, we've always looked at each individual company as from a unique standpoint and not this cookie cutter approach to OT, to valuation, to, you know, M&A. That's, that's never been Zweig's approach. So I really want, encourage you to reach out and check in with these guys because they really can help you. Well, Randy, this has been a lot of fun. Yes, it's, it's good to get back into downtown Rogers and, and have a chat. <laughs> absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on and we will have you back for sure. That's a plan. Thanks, guys. Well, folks, that's another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. Learn more about one of the oldest newsletters in the design industry by visiting thezweigletter.com. You can read articles online, listen to this podcast, and sign up for a free subscription to the newsletter and have it delivered right into your email inbox every Monday morning. Sign up today. For more info about Zweig Group's advisory services or anything that we just talked about today with Will, or Zweig Group's publications, please visit ZweigGroup.com. You can subscribe to the Zweig Letter Podcast wherever you listen to it, and please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and we will see you soon. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to the Zweig Letter Podcast. We hope that you can be part of elevating the industry and that you can apply our advice and information to your daily professional life. For a free digital subscription to The Zweig Letter, please visit thezweigletter.com slash subscribe to gain more wisdom and inspiration in addition to information about leadership, finance, HR, and marketing your firm. Subscribe today.